I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here anymore. I'm on a wave. I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky. And the only trouble is in wondering why. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we try to worship God in spirit and in truth, talk about things, explore all things, see where God leads us. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Had a great interview with, an hour-long interview with Jack Ashcraft, a Byzantine priest, Greek Orthodox, uh, last Friday night. Thanks for all who took the time to watch and, uh, or listen and check that out. Jack was a very cordial host, and uh, I was frankly surprised at his calm, sensible understanding of the gospel of grace and the love that he extended toward me, my person, and the ministry. Thanks, Brother Jack. You can hear more from uh, Jack Ashcraft if you're interested at Intrepid Radio, and I believe that the uh, uh, our directors have put that up on the screen for you. As you know, by now, next week, right here at the Heart of the Matter Studios, we will be having Matt Slick, founder of CARM, uh, here for a two-hour special to talk about Calvinism. Those of you who have watched the show uh, know that I am not a fan of Calvinism uh, and what it represents, uh, but I am a fan of Matt, and he is a brother in Christ, as are all Calvinists who love the Lord, accept the gospel. So it's not a debate, it's not an argument, it's just for me to present what I think, Matt to present Q&A from you, calls, live audience, please, if you want to come and you're in the area of Salt Lake City, uh, feel free. You might want to get here about 7.30. We heard some people are coming. We'll have refreshments. I say that without even asking Derek, but I'm sure we'll have some sort of refreshments and, uh, and non-alcoholic libations, at least for all of you. I will have, no, just kidding. Uh, I received a really great quote that really lightened my spirits from a brother who I will call Brandon because that's one of the names he calls goes by. Uh, it's from a Christian legend named Oswald Chambers, and this is what it says. The Christian life is a life characterized by true and spontaneous creativity. Consequently, a disciple is subject to the same charge that was leveled against Jesus Christ, namely the charge of inconsistency. But Jesus Christ was always consistent in his relationship to God, and a Christian must be consistent in his relationship to the life of the Son of God in him, not consistent to strict, unyielding doctrines. People pour themselves into their own doctrines. And God has to blast them out of their preconceived ideas before they can become devoted to Jesus Christ. 
That's Oswald Chambers. Thank you, Brandon, for that great uh, quote. Thank you, Oswald, post-mortem. All glory to God, our Creator. And with that, how about a moment from Zawad? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. If you were with us last week, we hit Revelation and used the content of Revelation to illustrate how it, in all probability, had to have been written before 70 AD. Two points relative to uh, this from the Word of God. Uh, a distinguished scholar from the Sorbonne, uh, his name is Claude Tresmontant, uses the tense of the Greek in the works of John to show that all of John's writings, not just Revelation, were composed prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So there are many scholars who believe that Revelation, but also John's Gospel and John's uh, um, epistles were written well after 70 AD, but Tresmontant, he turns to the Gospel and he looks at the Greek tense. And for example, if you turn to John 5.2, there John writes a simple descriptive statement that says, Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethsaida, having five porches. Going straight to the Greek, the manuscripts say there is esten in the Greek, not there was, but there is a pool at Jerusalem. This would not make any sense of all at all for John to write in the present tense if Jerusalem was a heap of stones for the past 25 years before he constructed his gospel. So what it tells us when we look at the Greek and we look at the tense of the Greek, when John says there is a pool at Jerusalem, we know that Jerusalem is still standing. Otherwise, he would write there was, especially if, they, if, it, if he was writing the gospel at a time when uh, 25 years was supposed to have passed before he penned it. You can read more about uh, Tresmontant in his book, The Hebrew Christ, and in his work, The Gospel of Matthew, if you're interested. The second thing I want to point out comes by way of illustration. Uh, I do these because sometimes just referring to Scripture doesn't help. One of the biggest issues believers have today with the idea that Jesus has already returned and he's not coming back, this is really difficult, is where is our hope if Jesus has already returned? Even more to the point, how do we read and apply the Bible to our lives? So, an illustration. Suppose that you're a passenger on the great ship Titanic, and suppose that God has given you the spirit of prophecy. So you're, you're sailing, not sailing, but you're traveling through the seas, and you have the gift of prophecy, and while you're going across the sea, you see the wealthy class treating those who are in steerage very, very poorly. The wealthy class is treating them poorly because they are puffed up in their riches that are held in their traveling uh, bags and things, and they're just full of themselves. And you actually witness this. And let's say you also know you have a prophetic idea that the Titanic's going to go down. All right? So God tells you to call those passengers to repent, especially those who are filled with trust in their riches. Why? Because every bit of it is going to go to the bottom of the ocean. All of it is going to be lost. 
And then naturally, what you saw as a prophet there on the uh, Titanic came true, and it actually does happen. Well, in the epistle of James, the writer has been trying to tell the recipients of his epistle to prepare themselves for the same demise, that the riches are going to go because the end is near. He says, don't treat the rich with preferential treatment. Watch how you use your tongue toward people. And in the last chapter, James gets right down to brass tacks and he opens it up, chapter 5, saying, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you, James writes. Okay? Like a warning that's given on the Titanic, James is saying the same thing. Hey, you rich folks. Get ready to weep and howl for the miseries that are about to come upon you. What is James talking about? In verse 3, he adds, Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Now he's talking to that audience, and he says, You have heaped this treasure for the last days. Okay? Just as the warning on Titanic was against their imminent sinking, James is warning them of the imminent last days that they are in. Then in verse 5 he says, You have lived in pleasure on earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. And then in verse 7 and 8 he adds, To believers, be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. But ye also, patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Just like the guy on the Titanic, the iceberg is coming. James is saying, you guys, the, the, the end is coming. The iceberg is out there. It's going to come in the form of destruction. Okay, so how are we to read and apply this illustration in James to our lives today and what happened at Jerusalem? In the very same way, we are all, this is how I would teach the Bible, we are all on a Titanic. Our individual ships, we are all living in Jerusalem pre-70 AD in the very lives we live. None of us know when the end is coming, but we know it's coming. We know it's headed our way. Do we heed the reality of this and prepare for it? Or do we go about and lay our hope on our riches? Do we lay our hope on living forever? Do we lay our hope on all these things that James is saying, don't do it. The end is coming. The scripture is the most marvelous gift because it presents us with types and pictures and shadows uh, that are applicable to our lives as believers right now. We read, we learn, we heed, or we ignore the principles that are literally played out on real people, God's people, nearly 2,000 years ago. Simply put, the nation of Israel was a type for every individual believer today. Without a single principle lost by time or the fact that they have been literally fulfilled, that's irrelevant. All the principles apply to us as individuals. Treasure the book, the lessons, apply their meaning to your life. You never know when you're going to hit that iceberg. You never know when Jesus is going to return for you. Meaning when you go, that's going to be your rapture, your second coming, your advent. 
And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, open up our eyes and ears to your truth. Forgive me for the things I say that are wrong and the points I make which uh, lead people to think uh, in error. Send your spirit to anyone who's seeking to correct and to guide. Use us, Lord. Bless our staff and our volunteers. The audience is here live and those who are at home watching, those who watch on the archives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we used the Bible to show the dating of Revelation. Not that because it's been fulfilled doesn't mean it doesn't need to continue the, 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 the scripture. So as I said in the thing just a minute ago, how do we apply this word today? The gospel story is found in this New Testament. So are directives on how to live as Christians. This is the two-part message of the New Testament. A gospel message and then all kinds of instruction on how to live as believers today. Most respectable Christian churches today take this New Testament, they take the New Testament, and they approach it like this. This is the New Testament. It's the Word of God. For a person to be right with God, they have to comply with everything that's in this New Testament. Okay? The intimation is that in order for a person sometimes to even be saved, they have to know, embrace, and apply all the contents of the New Testament to themselves to be right with God. Um, this thinking makes the whole New Testament synonymous with the good news. That if someone was describing what's the good news, some people might even hold up the whole New Testament and say, this is what it is. Here it is, right there. Read that, study it, know it, live it, apply it, and you'll be okay with God. It's a tremendous mistake. It is, leads to all sorts of craziness. The first craziness it leads to is, if this is true, there's an implication in the idea that the New Testament can be completely agreed upon. And this is not true, we know, but something as simple as water baptism we disagree on. So the implication is, this you have to know it, and you have to obey it, and you have to follow every bit of it, but we disagree on most of it. We don't really know what most of it means in the truest sense of the word. Then there's the fallacy that the contents have to be applied and lived perfectly. That's just another law. That is just like putting the, the Ten Commandments in front of you, except it's more like a, a, a thousand commandments and saying you've got to live it to be a Christian, to be right with God. So they say it's got to be understood perfectly is the implication, and it's got to be lived perfectly is the implication. If we really think about these positions, the whole world is going to go to hell. All Christians are going to go to hell because the good news is not so great anymore if the New Testament is the good news because nobody lives the New Testament in its entirety. Nobody. Fortunately for us, conformity to every point of the entire New Testament narrative is not required for salvation. What is? Faith. Faith. That is what is required for salvation. It's as simple as that. Faith in what? Jesus, listen, which is summarized in the New Testament narrative as the good news. It's faith in Jesus, 
which the New Testament summarizes in this thing we call the gospel, the good news. Generally speaking, generally, it means the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the general thing. Our modern Eastern ce Easter celebrations are really celebrations of the good news, that man came full of God, overcame death and sin, and rose from the grave. The fact that he did that and we look to him and believe on it, that's the good news. If you want to get more specific and take all of the kind of elements of the New Testament definition and create a good news account, I would sort of suggest this, and this isn't exhaustive, but I think it's close. You might disagree. God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whoso believes in him, his sonship, him being the I am, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory, will not die in their sins and will therefore be saved from afterlife misery. That's as simple as it is, that good news message. It's just unbelievably beautiful. The good news story, 40 or so words. This is the first message found in the New Testament. It is a message that is preached to non-believers. It is preached, it's what the apostles preached, and it was always preached to non-believers, okay? Uh, receiving it by faith makes non-believers believers through the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to prove this tonight, and there's seven or eight passages where people could use to say otherwise, but if we got into them through the Greek, I could prove, I think, my stance. But the gospel is never preached to believers in the New Testament. The good news is never preached to believers in the New Testament. It is preached to unbelievers. Believers are instructed by teachers and pastors in the rest of the things that the New Testament it covers. Everything besides those 40 words strung together that we just read. That is taught in the churches to believers. But the gospel, the good news, is what evangelists preach to the unbelievers. Believers are taught by teachers. Unbelievers are evangelized by preachers. That is a New Testament tenet you can prove by just looking at the Greek word choice for what is being done where. In the King James Version of the New Testament, there are 788,280 words, English words. The gospel, the good news, could be reduced down to 40 or so. There's 788,280 words, and the gospel is 40 or about. You might add a few relative to Jesus Christ in his life and receiving him. That leaves 788,240 words that serve another purpose. Looking at this point in an even more dramatic fashion, there are 138,020 words in Greek that make up the New Testament. 138,020 Greek words only. There are 788,000 plus English words that make up the New Testament. That leaves an exorbitant amount of amplification in English to explain what the Greek is saying, right? So uh, 
That's a lot of filler in between these translations. My point is that what is essential to salvation is faith from the heart described in 40 words. That's the essence of salvation through the gospel by grace. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoso believe in him, in his sonship, in him being the great I am, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory, will not die in their sins. That means they, they don't suffer afterlife punishment for their sins. That's the good news. Okay, that's simple. We note that the good news does not include anything about Trinity or Binity or modalism or monotheism. It's implied in the context, agreed. But it says nothing about that. It says nothing about hell being eternal or not being eternal. It says nothing about the second coming, nothing about Arminianism, nothing about Calvinism, nothing about uh, Episcopus Verba, nothing about water baptism, nothing about being born again. Now those things are found in other places in scripture. I get that when we contextually teach that to believers, we learn those things, but they have nothing to do with a person being saved, which is the whole goal of all of it to begin with. The good news which is believed unto salvation is all focused on Jesus Christ, period, alone, done. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 3, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Very simple. We burden each other with these backpacks of doctrine and theology and insights and musts and do's. The simplicity of the gospel was created that way for a reason. In chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul writes a number of things. Lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. In Colossians 2.8, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after... Christ. Just Christ. Jesus. That is it. Anyone, I don't care who they are, what church they go to, if they say, I believe that Jesus Christ was born, he died, he lived, he, and he was, overcame sin through his perfect lived life, and he suffered and died and rose from the, uh, from the dead, that is my brother or sister in Christ. Until we get to that point, until we stop making mountains out of the 788,000 molehills and receive each other as recipients of the good news, we will forever be out of character with what Jesus came to bring, and that was peace on earth amongst his church. In the same chapter, uh, in the verse 16 of the same chapter, Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or respect of a holy day, or of a new moon, or of Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility. Now it's talking about attitudes we're supposed to have, or worshiping of angels, intruding into those things that he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 8, 9. Christ Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. That means he is the end point. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, 
not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied them. In the reception of the good news, there is absolute and total unity, a unity that God intended for all men and women to share in the name of his son. It's a unity that binds the hearts of people on 40 word premise. That's all it is. I, I wish we could somehow agree to that. Next week, we're gonna be with Matt Slick. There are people who divide over an ism in the body, several isms. Why can't we agree that we do share the same gospel, which is um, it cannot be altered and we have to agree what that gospel is and we accept that as the core, but everything else superfluous. In the reception of the good news, there's this unity. It's possible because God has simplified the, the good news so much. He's simmered it down to where there's little wiggle room to argue over. And when people do, we know automatically it's a different gospel. We know automatically, no, you're teaching something that's outside of what the good news is. We want to make borders and we try to get people to do other things, but the good news is really amazing because it's in its simplicity we are all able to accept it. If we don't, we've not been in, uh, 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 adopted into the body of Christ. If we do, we have. Through this, God has used the simplicity of these 40 words or so, and he can take a million people from a thousand different languages and dialects from a million lifestyles and interests and tastes and cultures and make them one based off that 40 word simple premise. That is radical, isn't it? The closest thing we have to it is a really wonderful piece of music that the masses from every culture relate to and all appreciate whether they understand it or not. They can, they can get it. Music has that ability. But Christ is far more influential and lasting than a piece of music because he's everlasting. We won't become bored with that music and it doesn't dim or fade. It only grows as it's fed, this faith in Christ. Now comes the rest of the New Testament words. We've established the import of the gospel. The first 40 uh, words are preached to convert. The remaining 788,000 plus words are taught to believers. Paul put it this way. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in right, righteousness. Listen to this line, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You see, the gospel is received by faith and salvation is granted to unbelievers when it is. The rest of the New Testament is given for inspiration and instruction and correction and reproof that the man of God, not unbelievers, that the man of God, someone who has received the gospel, may be complete, thoroughly furnished and know how to then walk and live in their life and do the good works that we talk about Christians doing, works of love. See, the 40 or so word gospel represents only the first distinct part of the New Testament narrative. It's like the gospel is like a life raft that is thrown out onto a stormy sea for unbelievers to cling to and get on. Okay, you got that? The gospel is a gate into a kingdom by faith on the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel gets you into that kingdom. The other 787,000 words are debatable, non-essential instructions. 
relative to the salvation of those that have gotten on the life raft, those who have come through the gate. You heard me right. They are non-essential to salvation. They, they're, I can say that because they're not part of the salvific model that we have. God didn't include them in the good news. So they are non-essential to salvation. Look at it this way, and we'll wrap it up. Suppose a man falls down right in front of you, and he is exhibiting all the signs of a heart attack. And in the, in the room next door, there's a card, and it has 40-word instructions on how to perform CPR, okay? That man needs CPR right now, but you don't know how to do it. So you know that card's there and you scream, somebody bring me the card. Somebody bring me that life-saving uh, news. And instead they bring you a 15 volume set of medical journals, okay? And they say, here, this will tell you how. And you say, listen, all I need at that time, at this time, is the instructions on how to save this man's life. He is dying right now. This is the good news in a physical sense. Nothing more. Let's say someone finally brings you the card, and with these simple words, you administer CPR according to the instructions, and the man revives. Here's, he is now part, let's say, of an elite group. He's part of a group that has been saved by CPR and nothing more. No medical doctor shot epinephrine in him. Nobody did anything. They didn't do open heart surgery. They didn't use paddles. They didn't do anything else. It was CPR. We know God did it, but it was CPR, the administration of it, that did it. Now, let's suppose that Disneyland has a day where only people who have been saved by CPR get to come in for free. No one gets to come into the Magic Kingdom unless they receive life-saving CPR. The park is filled with people, and the people all share the exact same reason why they were let into that park. It was CPR. They were administered, and their body responded to it. While inside, though, in the Magic Kingdom, those people are going to differ on all sorts of things now. Like, what does someone who's received CPR dress like? What does someone who's received CPR, should they be eating popcorn and fried foods? Or should they be just eating vegetables? The differences in their worldview is going to be phenomenal because it's parks full, but they share the one commonality. They've been saved by the good news, right? They can differ on what... CPR saved people should wear, how they should live, all those things, but they cannot differ on what got them into the magic kingdom. Their life was saved by the fact that their body received cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Everything else is ancillary. It's up to debate. Everything else is up to debate. Got it? So this is the simplicity, the beauty, the primary message of the New Testament, nothing else. It is the reception of this message that saves people. Denominations will add to this good news types of water baptism. Suddenly, the good news is not as good anymore. It's lost some of its favor because it takes all men and it says you won't share the same way. 
Some have to do this a little bit differently or see this a little bit differently. Some will add creeds. We want you to sign this creedal admission in order for you to belong to our part of the kingdom that has been saved by CPR. Some will say you have to do this to be saved or stay worthy or become a good member. Uh, but the gospel is the good news. It stands alone. Listen closely. This is the point to it was the gospel that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. That's what he preached. None of the Pauline epistles existed then. None of John's epistles, Jude, Peter's epistles, Hebrews existed at this point. The Holy Spirit had just fallen and Peter preached the gospel. And guess what? 3,000 souls were saved. We didn't have any of the other stuff. None of it. We had the preaching of the gospel. Souls were saved. I'm making this point to try to establish the New Testament order of information. First, salvation through preaching the good news to non-believers. Second, teaching the disputable matters to those who have been saved. When we agree that they are disputable, we can agree that they are not part of that gospel. We can agree that we will love each other when there's differences between them. And we will carry on as people who have been saved by God's CPR. Did you know that nowhere in the New Testament do we read that the gospel is ever taught? How do you teach good news? You don't. You shout it. You preach it. You scream it. You don't sit down and teach good news. It is something that is preached. It's like uh, you don't sit there and try to detail everything that a book says uh, that's, uh, when giving someone CPR. You do the immediate only necessities. Once the good news has been received and a person has been given life through Christ by the Holy Spirit, through grace, then and only then do the, the, it, do the remaining words of the Bible have purpose. That's when they have purpose. And that's when we begin to talk about them. Never in the New Testament do we find the good news taught to a gathering of believers. What we do find is teachers and instructors in the non-essentials guiding believers, but we never find teachers of the good news or preachers of non-essentials. Those do not cross over. You don't find them preaching to unbelievers non-essentials. You hear them preaching essentials. If we call someone a preacher, people sometimes will say, hey, preacher, I'm not a preacher unless I'm preaching the gospel to unbelievers. Otherwise, I'm a teacher. I am teaching the disputable matters to believers. Do you see the difference? Look at the ratio. The amount of biblical information God has given to us in the New Testament and how much of it is requisite for salvation. So, so little. The rest of it, God, I believe, has purposely set it up so that we will have to learn to love each other, so that we will have differences of opinion. So we will look at each other and say, you may not agree with that. I don't agree with this. I like that. You like that. But we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. It's really ingenious the way God has set it up, and here's why. All the rest of that information, I'm almost done. That's in the New Testament. That's outside of what the gospel definition is is being absorbed by believers at different levels, in different rates, at different quantities, and in different levels of light. And as believers assimilate and are in the Word if they have the time, and are subject to the Holy Spirit, and they, they pursue Christ by truth-seeking, they begin to see things in ways 
that people who are, don't have the time to be in the Bible as much or aren't as interested or have a limited intellect will receive them. And it's just like Christ's parables. They're understood at some level, they're understood at another level, and they're taught that way so that everybody can enjoy. And if you are to fight over the meaning of parables, you've lost God's whole meaning in teaching in parables. It's so we could understand at these different levels and let them have meaning to us. All right, I am personally petitioning all believers of every ilk, and I hope we can continue this next week when Matt comes, to fully embrace everyone as brothers and sisters in the Lord who have through faith received the good news, who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, and then we let love abide uh, amidst all the rest. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. I think we have a spot, new spot. We can do a spot, Merle says, uh, 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 but we have emails. There it is. our campus gatherings on Sunday. We sing the Word of God set to music. That's one example of it. Those, are, those songs are available on four CDs by going to uh, whatever you saw on the screen or going to hotm.tv and the store. Rob S. wrote, I'm having a little confusion on how God's sovereignty supersedes man's free agency. If you have time, can you explain this? Well, Rob, first of all, I don't believe God's sovereignty supersedes man's agency in many cases. There may be some cases where it does, where he steps in and scares somebody so terribly. They do, like Paul, it seems like that happened. But then again, maybe Paul had the ability to refuse what was happening. We don't know. But I don't believe God's sovereignty supersedes man's agency. That's a Calvinist position. The Calvinist position is God is sovereign and he does what he wants irrespective of man. In fact, to a Calvinist, men do not have free will when it comes to choosing him or not. But I also don't accept man's agency as having the ability to trump God's sovereignty. This is not a contradiction, but this is the basis for what is called Arminianism. 
that God is love and God is calling, but men, because of their evil nature, or because they're recalcitrant, or because they're rebellious, they say, I'm not going to listen, I'm going to do what I want, and they trump God's sovereignty because of their free will. I don't agree with that either. So, obviously, what I agree is something that's an amalgamation of the two, and, uh, and it's not universalism, but what I believe is God's sovereignty allows man's agency through his foreknowledge, having the ultimate victory over sin and death. More of that is going to come out as we talk to Matt Slick next week. But what I mean by that is God has the whole picture from the beginning before we were ever created. He knows what we're all going to do. He knows the choices we're going to make and he lets us take them. And he has different, maybe we can just put it this way, just I'm making it up as I go. Maybe he has different little approaches or plans for all these different people. For the people who really seek him and love him, he has a plan called Jesus, who they will come and they will be seeking God so much they'll see the light. And then Jesus in their life here. And then for those who are rebellious and, and they return from the light, he still has the plan Jesus, but he also has a plan called hell, which is a dark place. And after this life, they go there and they reflect upon what they've done. And, they, and then they get out and they're judged according to their works in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then he has another thing called the, the uh, 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 Lake of Fire. And in the Lake of Fire, this is another plan. And, and the Jews believe that that was a place of cleansing. And that someone who is so rebellious and so hard-nosed and isn't going to, Jesus, still, it's by him. They're in the lake of fire and, they're being, and then finally they give up. God is not going to be robbed of victory. He had victory through his son who overcame sin and death. Now, our free will can really impede what he wants to give us the whole way, but he's going to have victory through total reconciliation. That's how I see it, Rob. I know people will disagree, but that's where we are. Uh, we, Marcus writes, My dad and I heard Joseph Smith actually survived being shot and went on to become a professional golfing champion. Uh, this really brightened my day this morning. Uh, that is absolutely incorrect. He actually went on to become the CEO of Ford. And uh, I don't know where these things come from. Uh, I think the man died when he was shot. And, uh, and it must be uh, something that is tongue-in-cheek from our friend Marcus. Keith writes, Not a hill to die on is such a great and loving quote to people. You are representing or you are presenting discussion yet embracing all to keep focus on Christ. And I appreciate that Keith P. understands that. I don't say that line, it's not a hill to die on, just to kind of have a caveat to throw things out. Uh, we, are, we are not dying, uh, we are not only dying on unknowable hills, we're killing each other on unknowable hills. I'm not against talking and disagreeing at all, but I am against separating and dividing over tenants that we don't really know. Those hills are not worth dying on or being killing anybody on. Jim C. writes, a caller called in episode 411 and asked, can I go to hell after I believe? And you said, I believe you can. I used to think the same way till a non-believer friend of mine was dying and his kids asked me, 
if I would come and talk to him. So I was unprepared. I decided to go and write something down on a piece of paper of what the Word said about the assurance of salvation and some of the questions many of us have. And he sent me the article that he composed uh, on this subject. Uh, let me be clear. And uh, I, am, I use Scripture to support this, and we're going to get into this with Matt Slick as well. But you aren't a believer and you go to hell because you failed in your life or because you've had sin in your life or due to a weakness, a weak faithless moment or turning from the good news temporarily. Uh, it's, it talks about there's a tr it talks about turning from the solution that was once given and stamping Christ and his offering under your feet and turn into another form of life, whether it be for salvation or something else. Paul literally assigns people who return to the law to this category. He said, you can't go and be saved by Christ and then return to elements of the law and think you're going to be saved, you're going to be done for. That's, that, I mean, he literally applied it that way. And there's a lot of scriptures. There's probably seven uh, strands of scriptures that are so powerful to show that people who have believed, who did taste of freedom in Christ, who did accept his gospel, but later turned. That is a big question when it comes to the Calvinist debate. We'll talk about that, but that was one that came from um, Andrea L. Uh, this is from an LDS person. I emailed you a while back saying how the show helped me from the LDS church. My husband and I are trying to figure out what kind of Christian church to go to. I've been praying for some guidance on what church to choose. We have a couple on our list to check off. Through your show and through other studies, I'm learning different theologies in the Christian faith. I'm excited to see your show on Calvinism. This morning, we had a yard sale, and I had sale, and we had a decorative cross that I had for years, but I didn't want it. I didn't like the decor, so it was up for sale. A man showed up and looked at it, and he felt prompted to ask if we have a church that we go to. And we told him we just left the Mormon church and are currently looking for a new Christian church. He mentioned a couple churches in our area and mentioned this how they were all Reformed, and we would probably like that. Reformed is another word for being Calvinist. I didn't really know what Reformers believe, so I looked it up, and basically my understanding is they're Calvinists. I then realized that most churches in my area are Reformed. My question to you, what Christian churches are not Reformed Calvinists? And then she goes on and says, you know, being LDS and coming out and looking for a church, it's like having P... TSD, PSTD, what? No. <laughs> PSTD, that is also rampant in the Vietnam years. Uh, yeah, PTSD. I think my face is getting red. Um, and she says, you know, it's really tough. And, and this is one of the reasons why our ministry, which start out focused on the LDS, we're still focused on that. I believe that the Mormons are flooding out and they need a place. And I think that when they get into a Reformed church and they start to hear what it is all about, I think it's going to harm them and it's going to maybe drive more away from God altogether. So we, we're looking to try to 
get rid of these experiences where people are coming out of Mormonism or coming into the relationship with Christ and being burned by religion again. And so we don't want that, and so we're trying to explore all these things and give some reasonable answers to it. Now, I know a Calvinist preacher will say, we have the reasonable answers, and I don't think you do. And, and, and that's my opinion, and, and, and we'll talk about that. But that's why I do what I do, to help Mormons realize you don't have to go to a reform. So bottom line, uh, reformed churches are known as reformed. You're going to find Dutch reformed. You're going to find um, Presbyterians are traditionally reformed. You're going to find that most Baptists are not Calvary chapels, balanced between Arminianism and Reformed. And, uh, and then you're going to have to kind of look at what the uh, statement of faith is on everybody's website when you go to a church and see what they happen to believe. The problem is there is truth in, the, in Reformed faith. Calvin was not a dummy. He knew definitely he taught biblical truth. And Calvinists have a lot of biblical truth. I just don't embrace the tulip as, as being uh, the systemized theology that we all have to receive. Offline, do you find that the more we understand God in spirit and love, the more we find we will end up in an understanding of a God that all religions, including Christians by label, will want to stone us? And I don't mean by weed. I even now find my seeking to know more truth to be more just a burden and vain because with wisdom comes much unrest. I think that to love is the faith we end up in and Christ is the author and finisher where words we say start to mean nothing. What do you think? I agree. Uh, I've come to the point in my walk that... Um, uh, it's love. I'm going to give you a really quick story. This happened two days ago. I go to a gym here. There's a girl there. She's probably 25. Uh, and she uh, is a little bit kind of flighty in the way she talks. She's just a little bit kind of like this. And she works there. <laughs> She's not that way on purpose. This is her makeup. It, 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 and I'm not sure that the well goes too deep in it. And uh, she came up and said, hi, Sean. I said, hey, how you doing? Good. And she said, guess what? She was all excited. I said, what? She said, I'm getting baptized. I said, you are? Where? She says, the Mormon church. My, my mom and dad, they're Mormon, and they weren't active, and now they got active again, and I'm going to get baptized because my, my boyfriend's Mormon, and I'm going I'm to go and get involved in that. I said, good for you. You going to get mad at me? I said, good for you. She doesn't have depth. She doesn't have any. She's, she's joining something that teaches Christ at least. I know it's not perfect. I know it is, as an institution, horrible. I really do. But it's better than they teach Jesus. They teach resurrection. They teach his life being exemplary. They teach values and morals. They teach to repent. They teach prayer. They teach these things. I don't agree with their theology. I hate their system. But I could have taken that little girl and I could have just blasted her with stuff. And it would have, my heart said, do not go down that road with her. Now, if it was someone else who was equipped and they were capable and they were defending it, I would definitely sit and go counterpoint and everything. But love, like this person just wrote, is the key to this life as a Christian. And if it doesn't exist and it doesn't guide our actions, we're failing. Knowledge won't do it. 
And I found, I discovered that. I used to believe knowledge would. And that's when I got up and I thought I knew and that's why I fought so hard. I know what is right, you're wrong. And I have discovered that's not true. That the churches don't even agree with each other on the most simple things. So it's gonna be the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, which is peace, which is joy, which is happiness. Do I like Mormonism? No. But you know, I don't like Presbyterianism and I don't like Baptists and I don't like any of the institutions to tell you the truth. So it's gonna be the people and our love and Jesus Christ in their life. There is a scripture in Revelation that says God will bring to ruin those that are ruining the earth. I'm so used to being a futurist, spending years as a Jehovah's Witness than a Mormon. I have embraced preterism, but I still have some questions. God bless you. Without your ministry, I would be agnostic. Praise God. You know, we have the ministry because of, of him, and I'm glad that we could be of help. And again, preterism, while I certainly believe that there is a lot of truth to it, it's not an unassailable uh, presentation or system. I do believe, I stand on that, but I could be wrong. Uh, there is always the thought that, it present, that the Bible presents us with a picture and that that picture is being fulfilled now in a spiritual sense with the destruction of the world. I can see how that could be right and that stands outside of the preterist view. So look, I, I don't mean to dogmatic. And if you're futurist and you love it and that keeps you close to Christ and God, fine. I just try to teach what I think and, and accept it or not. We are almost out of time. Uh, we haven't done this in a long time, but if you're interested, uh, you can support us. They showed a graphic down there at the end of the street. End of the street. They showed a graphic down at the end of the screen. Uh, and that support comes by way of sharing the show with other people and letting them know what we're doing. Tell them when to watch and how. Uh, praying for us, uh, that means more than anything because it helps all of us get along, it helps all of us love each other, it helps me to be able to sustain uh, amidst a world of, uh, that tempts me, and uh, also uh, helps my family, and then and, and everybody in the ministry's family, and then finally financial support. If you're in a position, if you're retired on a limited income, if you're an old man or an old lady, or if you're a student, if you want books and you can't afford it, write us, we'll give them to you. If you, any of that, it's not for, this is the petition for financial help, is if you're in a position and the Lord has led you to, to do it. That's what we've always gone by, and we hope you'll consider that. So we love you. Next week, Matt Slick, a two-hour special. And just to let you know, the following day, Matt and I are going to film four one-hour segments covering other points that we didn't hit in the two-hour special. If you want to be here, show up at 7.30 at the Heart of the Matter Studios, Tuesday, May 5th, and uh, food and refreshments will be served. We'll see you then here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred.